0: This New America NYC event took place on June 18, 2018 and is titled 2020 Census, A Tech Revolution or Risk? Opening remarks are given by Dr. Michael Lindsay, Elena Breitman, and Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer. The first panel of this event features Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Congressman Adriano Espaillat, Manhattan Deputy Borough President Aldrin Bonilla, Leah Aden, Steve Choi, and Dr. Christina Greer.
1: Good morning, good morning, welcome. The McSilver Institute is delighted to partner with New America NYC for today's important forum. I want to thank our esteemed panelists and elected officials that are here with us today. Uh, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, Congresswoman Carol Maloney, Congressman Espaillat, as well as our Manhattan Deputy Borough President, Aldrin Bonilla. Yesterday, like many of you, I was transfixed following Representatives Espaillat and Maloney on social media as they traveled to New Jersey to an ICE detention facility to visit fathers who have been separated from their families. Thank you both for your persistence And we join you in your efforts demanding that the Trump administration end family separation. Indeed, families belong together. I would also like to thank uh, and acknowledge our community co-sponsors and we thank them for their leadership as well as their support.
2: Thank you, Michael. Um, We love partnering with NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. You do incredible work that deeply studies pervasive policy issues and we have incredible colleagues such as Dr. Michael Lindsay and Chief Operating Officer Rose Pierre-Louis to thank for that. It makes our mission of lifting and circulating ideas easy as we at New America New York and NYU Silver Institute have now had a regular cadence of convenings that bring together local and national experts from different sectors to offer a fresh perspective on important issues. New America is unique among think tanks as a national organization that draws on the questions being asked and ideas piloted beyond Washington, with a firm foothold in New York. Together with local actors, we are developing a new civic enterprise of public concern, public problem solving, that connects effective, inspiring examples of local ideas and initiatives to prominent national and international conversations. And nothing could be more impactful for both local and national policies than the census. It will impact who represents us in Congress, it will change the level of benefits New Yorkers receive, and while it is a national issue, in New York, we have some of the most concentrated levels of people who are vulnerable to being undercounted. While at the same time, some of the best examples of public and private efforts to ensure a fair and full count, about which we're going to hear on the first panel for sure. We're proud to have key elected officials join us this morning, and I'll add my thanks to Michaels for um, both members of Congress who are here today, Maloney and Espiat, as well as our local officials. And so we're about to now move to the conversations, uh, but before the panels, we have the pleasure of hearing from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer. This is not the first census go around that Gail's worked on. In 2010, as a city council member, she urged the Census Bureau to extend the timeline for the count to ensure that it provided fair treatment to New York Spanish speakers. And while we're very much back in that moment and on steroids of worrying that the 2020 census is being designed to disenfranchise so many, as an elected official who has always paid so much attention to the crossroads of policy and technology, Gail understands the issues and opportunities in this first ever digital census. I'm incredibly pleased to welcome Borough President Gail Pruer. Good
3: morning, and thank you very much to Elena, and to New America NYC, and to the McSilver Institute, to Michael, and to Rose pierre Louis, who has my, knows my office very well, because she was deputy borough president. Um, it's really an honor to be here. We have many challenges. I think, as you know, under normal circumstances, pulling off a census in the United States requires a huge effort. It's the largest peacetime mobilization and operation that this country knows. And to get it done and to get it done right requires a rare American, all hands on deck, everyone together, everyone counts type national trust and spirit. Breaking news, we're not living in normal times. Our national civic trust levels are at a modern day low while the scapegoating and targeting of marginalized communities are at record highs. Many of the same communities we will need to rely on and get buy-in to achieve a complete and accurate census count, reflective of America's full and nuanced diversity, are exactly the ones experiencing constant attacks. If the census is difficult during normal circumstances, imagine what the response and participation rates will be under this hostile White House administration that is actively alienating traditional, hard-to-reach, hard-to-count communities. Undercounts have historically plagued the census even without the obstacles which are now added, the suspicions, the wedges being fermented by the White House, exemplified by the controversial, ill-conceived, and untested citizenship question. Like other big cities, New York has its challenges to achieving an accurate count For example, the undocumented, low-income families, immigrants, public housing residents, children and single people, and or roommates, they are all disproportionately undercounted. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Manhattan being Manhattan, I know a little bit about it, and I can predict that there'll be an undercount among Manhattan's billionaire class who are too globetrotting to be bothered and whose luxury residence too hard to get into for the census people to count. The undercount challenges under this new normal are exasperated by this administration's policies, practices, rhetoric, particularly on immigration, but it goes well beyond the undocumented. This affects other demographics and adds newer groups to the undercounted ranks. In New York, you'll find people from all walks of life with no legal status issues of their own, but with real social ties, intermixed familiar, and living arrangements, with people experiencing uncertain immigration status, which alone will give an individual pause to complete the census form and avoid participation altogether, even to the point of ignoring home visits from enumerators, the census people. Remember that the Census Bureau is a federal agency. And as such, some people don't see it as independent and impartial, just a data-collecting body. And they view its role potentially no different from ICE agents, determining who belongs here and who doesn't, who stays and who is detained and deported. In fact, the reasoning goes, what protections can we really count on that would prevent a presidential abuse of power through executive order from converting enumerators to census takers who are already agents of a federal agency into proxy ICE enforcement agents. These are real concerns. And for this census to succeed, this scenario must be dealt with and answered proactively, head-on, early, and often for any message that the census is safe and confidential to gain traction. No one believes or buys the official Trump Department of Justice version, for example, that the reason to change the census questionnaire so hastily and ask everyone in America whether they are a U.S. citizen, was done to help enforce the Voting Rights Act. Nobody believes that. Trump's record hardly creates trust or unity or civic spirit. In fact, it has contributed more to voter oppression, despite the Voting Rights Act justification used. And then we have all the headlines, and they're fearful, and they're grounded in our new normal. Scanning immigrants' old fingerprints. The wonderful gentleman who was delivering pizza to the army base in Brooklyn, getting almost deported, hopefully not. The fear of having your ID NYC being on its database. The Muslim travel ban. The white lawyer in Manhattan threatening to call ICE on Spanish-speaking restaurant workers. And the Queen's man, just in the paper the other day, father of two, facing deportation to China after arrest in an immigration interview. So the real test for 2020 is despite the Trump administration's efforts to subvert response rates and national participation, does Congress and does the U.S. Census Bureau have enough independence and integrity to ensure that the census lives up to its highest standards and ideals? Given the manner the censorship question made its way onto the questionnaire, circumventing routine protocols, hearings, and testing, The answer so far is no. Given the lack of practice dry runs in multiple jurisdictions and experimenting with half-baked online options without fully testing them, so far the answer is no. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has included the 2020 census on its list of high-risk government projects, citing rising costs because of predicted declining response rates by mail Combined with the cybersecurity and fraud risks involved with conducting the first census to rely mainly on internet responses. The risk of a bad count, quote unquote, and I know many panelists this morning will focus more on these tech risks. But I want to be clear the risk to the census is not inherent to the technology revolution. Well designed, well tested, and secured online options can work alongside paper and cybersecurity, blockchain technologies, and the like. They're all feasible. Alden Bonilla and I just met with the top tech person, the CIO in Taiwan. Taiwan has mastered implementing these type of civic tech innovations, and to be sure, some of these online options might help with some aspects of the undercount. Obviously, we still need paper for a lot of people who are not technology savvy. I want to mention in Taiwan also, they don't do a census because everybody has health care and everybody has a Medicare or Medicaid card. So they don't need to be counted and they don't have to spend. So single payer, just an idea. <laughs> the risk of an undercount and operational failure remains baked into the rhetoric, policies, and practices that have alienated, discriminated, and targeted the very communities needed to obtain a full count. And You know, I'm a techie, but and there is a role technology can play to improve the undercount, despite the headwinds working against a complete and accurate count. In Providence, Rhode Island, there was a dry run rehearsal. Local elected and civic leaders sounded the alarm on a badly executed test census and predicting an undercount that could cost Rhode Island state, federal aid, and even a congressional seat And I know that our congressional leaders will talk about the fact that if you don't have a good count, we're going to lose seats and we're going to lose funding. One core challenge faced by every census, but where improved tech data and mapping tools can play a role in 2020, is the issue of mailing the census questionnaires to all known addresses formatted correctly. New Yorkers know all too well that known addresses and where people live go well beyond your routine postal service and utilities company requirement, that's for sure. For census purposes, it matters not building code regulations or what constitutes a room, legal or illegal conversions. You have to count everyone wherever living in apartments and basements and large apartments converted into two dwellings and roommates that essentially constitute separate households. Even to inform people that they have an online option to fill out the form, you still have to mail them instructions a unique identifier, and other access information to an address that hopefully reaches them. It's challenging. In Manhattan, too, it's also challenging that since the last census, we've experienced the creation of a small city in the middle of the borough, Hudson Yards. There are now 25 new thousand more residents in this neighborhood, and it's not likely to be part of the undercount. But with all the new rezonings happening in Ward, East Harlem, And also, we have the financial district in Manhattan, and there are other parts of the city that have grown tremendously. So any undercount of a census tract affects funding, services, and representation, as I said earlier. We can leverage technology to make sure the census works with the Department of Buildings, the city planning, and our office. In the borough president's office, as Rose knows, we are the keeper of the borough map and the czar of all vanity addresses. That's a challenge in itself. (laughs) To make sure that all new building permits and the rush of construction in the pipeline get on the census master address database. We can help with that. This is key so that the questionnaires can be mailed to these new buildings in two years, whether or not the units are occupied by that point. I can tell you one thing. If there are affordable units, they will be occupied. Suffice to say, getting addresses correct in New York City is easier said than done. Don't get me started on the problem of vanity addresses, 911 emergency calls. We have to track down all of these, so I can imagine it'll be difficult for the census takers. Or there are instances where the census misses an address in a particular, like they did in Manhattan block, like 542 households on Grand Street, in the Lower East Side in 2010. Only Alden Bonilla would know this. Given the density of Manhattan, blocks alone are like small towns. And remember that every one of the community, 59 community boards in New York City represents mid-sized cities. So my office will work to fund some locally-based, culturally competent initiatives to help communicate the importance of the census in people's lives, notwithstanding all the noise coming from Washington. Social media campaigns can have a positive effect to move the response rate needle up for online submissions among some demographics and perhaps even in counterintuitive ways. In my first year as borough president, I automated, streamlined, and put the whole community board appointment process online. You can always get paper, of course. And we witnessed dramatic increases in interest and in applications, in participation, and most importantly, in diversity. We all have to be finally on the same page to increase the count across New York City, especially since the implication of an undercount, and even an accurate count for that matter, given national growth trends. This undercount can lead to real decreases in federal funding and congressional representation, the negative effects of which we can't afford to live with for any amount of time. So I want to thank New America NYC NYU's silver, everyone here. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Madam Borough President. And now for our panel discussions. I'm thrilled to introduce our moderator for today's discussion, Dr. Christina Greer. Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science and American studies at Fordham University. In 2018, she was named a McSilver Fellow in Residence. It has been wonderful to have such an incredible thought leader and, um, and, and thought partner, a dynamic scholar with us uh, at the Institute this year. Uh, Dr. Greer is the author of the book, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream, and can be seen on local and national news programs discussing all Political happenings in New York City and Washington, D.C. Christina is also the producer and host of The Aftermath on Ozzy.com and also writes a weekly column for the Amsterdam News. Please welcome Dr. Christina Greer.
4: Good morning. Oh, good. I'm from the Baptist Church, so I'm used to, like, loud good mornings. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists, and we're going to have a robust discussion and leave a little bit of time for Q&A, um, because I'm sure many of you have questions. So as I call your name, will you all please uh, sit up here, and I'll probably sit in this seat right here. So I'm pleased and honored to have Congressman Adriano Espaillat, who represents the 13th Congressional District in New York. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who represents the 12th Congressional District in New York. (laughs) Manhattan Deputy Borough President Aldrin Bonilla. (laughs) Leah Adden, Senior Counsel for NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Defense and Education Fund, I should say. And Steve Choi, Executive Director from the New York Immigration Coalition. Thank you all so much for joining us, and thank uh, New America and the McSilver Institute for making this happen. I wanna start with uh, you, Congressman, um, because you and, and some of your colleagues were visiting detention centers this weekend, which we know there's a direct link between the undocumented population and the census, and as you all know, in the Constitution, there aren't a lot of things written in our Constitution. It is definitely um, an outline of who we're supposed to be. But one of the things that is definitely written very clearly by the framers is that we should conduct a decennial census every 10 years to make sure we take stock of our population. They don't say documented or undocumented. They just say our population. So how important is this decennial census, and how does it affect New Yorkers specifically?
5: Well, uh, that's a very good question. Um, as she said, uh, I joined uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, and and four other congressional members uh, in going to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to visit fathers uh, who are detained there at that facility. And the first thing I want to say about that is that uh, nobody talks about the fathers, but children are being ripped away from father's arms too. Not just moms, but fathers too. Remember, this is a very dangerous trek journey, and very often these children are accompanied by their fathers. So As we uh, approach the census question, this week we'll probably encounter a debate in Congress that will give us these options. They'll say, you can have the children, but you cannot have the dreamers. You may be able to have family reunification, but you cannot have diversity visas. You may be able to get some of the TPS benefits back, but you got to give us $25 billion for a war. So this is uh, a very, so like, um, predatory effort to uh, hijack us, to pin us against each other. That's going to happen this week in Congress. And this is the backdrop of this question that's being placed in the census form. So fear is in the background, and this question is being placed in the census form about citizenship. Now, I joined, again, Congresswoman Maloney in, in co-sponsoring the IDEA Act that says that you should not arbitrarily or haphazardly or off the cuff come up with a question. These questions should be fully vetted in the census form. And the impact of these questions should be looked at short term and long term. In addition, I, I am a, a part of an, an amicus brief that challenges this question. Uh, so when if the citizenship question not only uh, hurts undocumented, if you are the head of the household and your uncle lives with you, or your aunt, and she or he is undocumented, you may not want to fill out that form. So if education funding is cut to New York State, it would not only impact undocumented students, but everybody. If we lose two congressional seats, we're not just going to lose them to undocumented or or green card holders. We're going to lose them to all New Yorkers. And so this is a dramatic question that would impact uh, disproportionately New York State, and we should be uh, proactive in making sure that it it does not get on the form. Thank you.
4: Thank you. And, Congresswoman Maloney, as as Congressman Esbayot mentioned, there's so many New Yorkers who are in what we call a mixed status household um, that might prevent them from wanting to fill this out. And you've introduced several census bills. Can you tell us about some of the bills that you've introduced and what you think is achievable in what we now know is an incredibly divided Congress right now?
6: First of all, thank you to the McSilver Institute and to NYU for hosting this really critical uh, conversation on the, on the 2020 census. Uh, the census is absolutely uh, fundamental to our democracy. It is the basis, it's the census numbers that serves the basis for representation. So if you're not counted, you're not represented. And all of our representative lines are based on the census for the city council, for the state legislature, and for Congress. So it's critical for representation. Secondly, we distribute over $800 billion a year based on census numbers. So again, if you're not counted, then you're not receiving the funding that you so justly deserve for, for health, for nutrition, for housing, all of the federal programs. So it's very critical for that. And it's critical, it's the main tool for planning not only for the private sector, for government, of where we put our hospitals, where stores are needed. So getting an accurate count is uh, fundamental. And as our moderator, Ms. Greer, pointed out, it is the only thing stated in the Constitution that requires the executive to, to act. It says that the executive should conduct this census every 10 years and that everyone in the country should be counted. So uh, we want everyone counted, uh, not just citizens. At the last minute, they added this citizenship question, uh, but tr- had no review. And all of the professionals have come out against it. Very telling, five heads, former heads, of the Census Bureau came out against it, both Republican and Democrat. And said that it would result in an undercount. So, what is an undercount? That means we don't get the representation we deserve, and it means we don't get the dollars that are critical, that are needed for the population. I have—I uh, used to be the chair of the subcommittee on the census. Then the uh, Republicans abolished it, like they abolished a lot of things, just wiped it out. So, I have started a census caucus, which is members of. Congress, we just voluntarily started our own caucus to work for an accurate count. And I've introduced a bill called the Idea Bill, which says that you cannot frivolously add uh, new questions at the last minute that have not been vetted. So the degree of probability of that passing in this divided uh, 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 Congress is like zero, I'd say, since they are doing—and then where did this question come from? Where did it come from? Rumor is that it was some political operative who did uh, was their master of redistricting, who came up with the number. So uh, there's a lot of injustice going around with this. Uh, but I have uh, also been, this will be my second trip to the Supreme Court. Uh, I went earlier on, on sampling, uh, which we lost that case. But I have filed an amicus brief to a court case that was begun right here in the Attorney General's office in New York. And 18 different states are suing on on the question of adding the citizenship question at the very last minute and professionals saying that it will result in an undercount. So uh, I, I predict that this will go to the Supreme Court and that this fight will continue. Now, in Washington, we used to have a whole effort to get uh, all of the communities involved in fighting for the census. And we had a meeting with uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, earlier, I'd say about two weeks ago in Washington. We're gonna have to do that on our own. We're gonna have to have organizations of every ethnic group, all the communities, making sure that our people are counted. All of our people are counted because our democracy depends on having an accurate count for accurate representation and for accurate distribution of funding uh, to families and communities and health centers that need it.
4: Thank you so much. Deputy Borough President Bonilla, I want to get a little more local because Congresswoman Maloney really laid out the importance of making sure not, not only how we fill out the census, but the trickle-down effect for our local communities, um, how, we get funded for roads, schools, please, whatever it may be in our local communities. And in your current role as the director of the 2000 census, um, 2020 census, you've worked in Washington Heights and Inwood uh, in some of the epicenters of this census um, to figure out how we're going to count very dense communities, not just the Dominican community, but other immigrant groups. And you've worked and now serve as a diverse, uh, you work and serve a diverse constituency, and your professional background makes you uniquely sensitive to the chilling effect that the citizenship question will have on immigrant communities in particular. Can you share with us what you and the Manhattan Borough President's Office are doing to rally your constituents to get ready? Because we know that because so many people are in a mixed-status household, they may not want to fill out the census. We know that many people who are immigrants may not want to fill out the census, looking at how this current presidential administration is treating immigrants
7: writ large. Absolutely, thank you for the the question. Um, First, I want to say that hard to reach areas or hard to count areas is not a foregone conclusion that you must have it undercount. right? That this is just the normal way of doing things. In the census 2000, I directed the census effort in Northern Manhattan and for the first time in New York City, uh, Hamilton Heights, uh, Washington Heights, Inwood, uh, that Northern Manhattan area had the highest male response rate in all of New York City. besting Forest Hills, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. Sorry, Gail, that's one of the only times Washington Heights beat the Upper West Side. But, but, but you know, I, the city came in around 55%, the male response rate, we were at 67%. And those areas that were hard to reach, hard to count, uh, areas that we targeted in, and and, it, and we had a five-point plan on how to do it, and it wasn't difficult, and I don't have much time to get into it now, but one of the main things, uh, uh, one of the main ingredients, if you will, it is uh, uh, you hire people at the most local level that are authenticators, that are legitimators, and they know how to access and know the cultural nuances of the people, right? It's a hiring thing. We In my office, uh, I hired 600 people, just in that one Northern Manhattan office, it, it, it was a huge effort, but uh, another thing is, uh, uh, and it got me, you know, fired twice or had to resign once. You know, it's not easy, but you have to be, you have to bring people along. So it was an educational component, right? It's uncomfortable as it is, but you have to talk about three-fifths compromise, right? How do you count five African Americans for the price of three? That's insane, but that's part of the Census Bureau history. You have to talk about Japanese internment camps. You have to talk about people that, 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 that have uh, multiple households within one address, right? And you have to be, you know, uh, 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 and, that, and that was difficult, right? That was difficult to have this guy. We had uh, e- events uh, weekly about what the census meant to you, so to individual communities and make it real for them in terms of schools, in terms of roads, in terms of benefits, in terms of federal resources, in terms of, yes, a congressional seats. One thing we did was speak to the aspirations of the immigrant community in this particular context, the Dominican community, that at some future date, you may be able to have a, a congressional representative. And 20 years later, uh, 18 years later, we have Congressman Adriano Espaillat representing the district. So, so from 2000 to, to 2018, we spoke to the aspirations of the people. One thing that I want to say that goes lost on people is that the Census Bureau for the decennial, because it is a constitutionally mandated obligation of the federal government, people don't understand the, the decennial census runs very much like a paramilitary operation. Do not get that confused when they say March 12th, on March 12th you're doing NUFU or SIFU or any one of these other acronyms that you have to do, the whole country on that day is, is on a turnkey is doing that. When they tell you, you, you know, you have just-in-time training, just-in-time information on this date and not before, and this could be disclosed and this can't, it is really a Herculean largest, you know, we do war well, but then a sort of war, the largest peacetime mobilization of all Americans is the census. And this is the frightening part, right? This is the long game that it's important to have oversight over so that the, 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 the census operation, right? We've always known that under the Census Bureau, but under the Constitution, it says uh, uh, the, the, the privilege and, and the purview of the Secretary of Commerce uh, uh, to designate, right, who will do the count. Nothing so it makes it can be done in the Department of Homeland Security which they're working very closely now. Federal agents, uh, uh, Census Bureau employees have to take an exam, right? So they're federal employees, right? Uh, the agents of the federal government. You, you know, there's uh, uh, worries about how, you could, you, you, how quickly you could turnkey what they do. I can tell you, uh, based on the people you hire, uh, even in the year 2000, I had enumerators that were like, you know, thinking they were deputies and sheriffs. And, and you know, without the proper supervision and training, and being reined in, you know, very uh, 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 isolating, alienating behavior could happen out there in the streets, if you will. So I think it's people really, really underestimate and don't understand the nuances of a decennial operation being almost like a paramilitary, surgical precision tri- type type uh, 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 enterprise. Um, and in terms of the undercount, the t- 2000 proved that a Spanish speaking. Foreign born, immigrant, low income, uh, public housing, isolated community could outbest the rest of all New York City and having the highest male response rate. And in terms of just to conclude with the, with the yeah. jobs piece, you have to understand this is what got me into education too. Just to hire 600 people, I had to test about 20,000. The literacy and numeracy issues in our communities are plaguing us. So after you pass that, then you have the background checks. Then after the background checks, you have a litany of other kind of screeners. So it's important to really begin the process early, just to even have the kind of people power to make it happen. If not, then the people power and the hiring and the vetting will be put in the hands even outside of the local community, which happened in 2020 with, less, with a greater right. uh, undercount. And that's one thing you don't want, is to have the power even taken further away from the kind of core of your community operations.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, so Leah, As senior counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, uh, you're one of the experts in one of the nation's leading civil rights groups on this panel. Can you frame for us some of your concerns and how you're advising various communities?
8: So I want want to add my thanks for being asked to be on this panel. Um, It is so important that these conversations are being had in advance of 2020 and that they, that the information that you learn here, you take back to your networks and communities because everyone, and whatever facet of life has a role to play in making sure we have a fair and accurate census. So whether you are litigating against the addition of the citizenship question, whether you are recruiting people to be enumerators, whether you're calling your representatives, whether you're with an organization willing to sign up to be in an amicus brief and put forward your perspective, there literally is no one who should not have a role in making sure that the 2020 census um, is fair and accurate. For the Legal Defense Fund's part, um, we obviously really appreciate the remarks you made about the history of our country of not having an accurate census, of counting black people as three-fifths for purposes of um, representation and having the 14th Amendment um, finally in that, um, but recognizing today that the attack on other communities is a similar attack that has been made against the black community. The opening remarks by the borough president are so important because we already had challenges coming into the 2020 census in terms of advancing. Every census, we should be getting better. We should be closing the gap of the hard to count communities. After the 2010 census, there were about one million black people who were not counted. So we, were, we should be working towards making that number zero or half or something. Then you add on the fact that we do not have a permanent census director. Um, That position has been vacant. Um, The funding that we need in order to have a modern census, that both speaks to the fact that we live in a more technologically advanced society, but also that there are many parts of our country, rural communities and others, where technology is not a foregone conclusion, and we should be working to make sure that those communities are being accessed. You add the citizenship question, which we've heard a lot of discussion about today, that is untested. The pretext of it um, is not um, accurate. It is, we've been enforcing the Voting Rights Act for 50 years without having on the short form census a question about citizenship. We use other data from the American Community Survey to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And it's a pretext, um, this this, um, idea that we need the citizenship question. We walk into the 2020 census already having challenges that were carried over from the last. Then you add on the the attempt at making the census not fair and accurate, which is a form of voter suppression, which is seen in the context of all of the other suppression tactics um, that we have. Um, And so it seems very bleak, but I do wanna talk about, as we get moved towards this side of the panel, the positive things that are taking place. Um, there are opportunities to continue to advocate that the census is fully funded in the way that it needs to be. And that means all of us should be reaching out to our representatives and making sure that they are uh, initiating legislation, supporting legislation, even building the record. Even if we don't get the things that we want, we've at least laid the record for future challenges um, related to the lack of funding. Um, There are multiple lawsuits happening all over the country by our peer organizations, so the NAACP, which is separate from my organization, the Legal Defense Fund, they filed one of the first lawsuits in order to ensure that there is adequate funding related to the census. There are multiple organizations, including um, Steve's organization, that are challenging the discriminatory intent behind adding the citizenship question. And then you have leading states like New York and California and others who are litigating because adding the citizenship question runs um, deeply inconsistent with the the constitutional requirement to take an actual enumeration. So you have um, policy efforts, you have litigation efforts, And then all of this public education is the third prong that I really encourage all of us, again, to be working towards. We have to be talking about the the funding implications, the redistricting implications. We also rely upon the census for data so that we can advance policy. And all of these things have ramifications for the next 10 years until the next census. So the impact is not only significant in terms of the money and the the investments, but they are long-term in terms of the years that we live with the data that is collected after the census. And I think we also have to be smart in talking to communities that reasonably should fear this government, right? I mean, it would not be to our advantage to not be um, to not be honest about um, the fact that this is a, a we're living in a disingenuous climate with a disingenuous government, where while the federal law says you cannot use the census data to target communities, we should be lifting that up. Um, You know, it it would not be fair if we were not honest with communities too about the real life consequences that we're seeing today. And so I think we need to be having conversations about how to balance our commitment to making sure everyone is counted, that everyone participates with also making sure that we are going to be there to protect people too if um, data is misused, if um, there are other ramifications. So we can talk a little bit more about that, but I think all of those are things that we should be thinking about and continuing to talk about.
4: Great. And so Steve, last but not least, and, and for those of you, we're going to have a very, very brief Q&A right after Steve um, gives his remarks. So please start thinking about your questions and keep them more Q than A. Uh, so Steve, uh, what Leah referred to with the lack of adequate funding is, is one of the many things is uh, there's already been a cut to the test facilities from four to one, right? Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be urban Rhode Island, rural West Virginia, Spanish-speaking Puerto Rico, and the tribal lands in Washington state but only Rhode Island was kept in even these pretests. So we see so many financial issues, leadership issues going on with the census, um, and as our deputy bar president mentioned, because it is somewhat run like a paramilitary organization, under this particular administration, there's some real concerns uh, for immigrant communities, for citizens alone, mm-hmm. but definitely people in mixed status households. Mm-hmm. So you and the New York Immigration Coalition are on it, to to put it bluntly. And you've collected many grassroots organizations around New York to prepare for this census. So can you tell us some of the lessons learned from 2010, uh, when frankly the immigrant groups were among some of the most prepared, uh, and what's different and newly challenging in 2020, and as you sort of close out the panel, what should we be doing, and what should we be looking forward to in 2020, since 2010 was essentially a success largely to you and your organizations.
1: Yeah,
9: thank you, Christina, I'm happy to talk about that. So this is my third census. The first census I was involved with was 2000. Aldrin talked about that. That time we thought the biggest issue we'd have to deal with was Y2K. It Wasn't that much of a problem. Now we obviously face a very different kind of situation. Um, I think back to 2010, though. And I think 2010, my experience then, was very similar to that of Aldrin's. And it showed me that there's, one lesson we can't forget when we're talking about the census, and that is that organizing works. Organizing works. We were working, not in northern Manhattan, um, but we were working in Flushing. I was the executive director of an organization working with the Asian American and the Korean American community out there, and we had a hard-to-count district. The hard-to-count score was somewhere in like the lowest 5%, you know? Tons of immigrants, lots of undocumented folks, Lots of people who didn't speak English as the first language, high levels of poverty. But the organizing that we did there, and the intensive organizing by which we went, literally went door to door, just like some other neighborhoods did, it made a huge difference. So that district, which was in the lowest 5%, registered in the 93rd percentile nationwide. And that taught me a lesson, that organizing works. Organizing works particularly in these hard-to-count areas, which are not just immigrant communities, but also a lot of African-American communities have very low hard-to-count scores, rural residents as well. And so if we're able to figure out how we can get major investment in the door-to-door outreach, there's no substitute for that because organizing works. If you fast forward to 2020, there's clearly a number of challenges that we face. (coughs) First, and uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face is the lack of funding, as we talked about. The Census Bureau is already cutting their budget by a huge amount. We talked about the the paramilitary style mobilization. Well, the number of enumerators that they had was not sufficient to begin with, but they're going to cut it by more than half. And the reason why is they want to go to an online census. They say all these reasons, yeah, it's going to make it more accurate. They're just trying to save money. That's the rationale. But what is that going to mean? The online census has so, so many questions that I have already about that. What are we going to do to ensure the data security and safety of all that data being transmitted over millions of networks going up to the Census Bureau? What about people who are on the other side of the digital divide who don't have access to safe and secure Internet access? And if we're talking about data security, that's another huge piece of it. Now, the stock line that the administration will give you is that the, the data that is captured by the census, the security is guaranteed and will only be used for data purposes. Well, if you believe that, I got some Trump stakes to sell you. I got a Trump University course. I mean, the fact is the Census Bureau does not have a good record when it comes to data security. We talked about the internment of Japanese Americans. When the Census Bureau gave that data, to uh, the authorities and even just 15 years ago when the Census Bureau worked with the Department of Homeland Security and gave them neighborhood level data about Middle Eastern and Muslim communities that fed into special registration and tens of thousands of people were deported. So I'm just gonna take a really large grain of salt when we talk about data security and the Census Bureau. We talked about the experiments. The fact is the Census Bureau was already supposed to go through four experiments. They've done one. How did that turn out? They did it in Providence, and the Providence mayor said, at best, it was gross incompetence. So we are dealing with a really bad situation. And then, of course, fear of the federal government. Think about the message that we're going to have to give out, particularly to immigrant communities and communities of color. We're basically going to have to say, yes, we know that you don't like this government, and this government doesn't like you. We can't really guarantee the security and safety of your data, but you should fill this out anyway because it's that important. And think about the line that we're gonna have to thread with that particular message because of the situation that we face with this federal government. I just wanna say though that it's not all doom and gloom. I think there's also really, there's some, some really interesting opportunities here as well. First of all, you wanna talk about data and technology. We can use that for us, instead of having that used against us, right? Back in 2010 when we were trying to do our work, you know, I had a BlackBerry back then, I know other people had some other phones. We, we didn't have an iPhone. The iPad had not yet been introduced by the time the 2010 census was out. And the data that we were trying to use, we were going door to door. We had to spend out the nose for this incredibly unreliable data source that we had to buy. If we had the right kind of data set, if we can actually get big data to work for us instead of the other way around. And we can use that with technology and we can arm our street outreach teams with tablets that are connected that are going to allow us to make our efforts that much more efficient and effective. That potentially can be a game changer if we use it right and we answer some of the questions about data security. Also state and local governments. I actually think one of the things is that the federal government's incompetence and folly and you name it, it actually means that state and local governments have to get into the game that they have to understand that they have the responsibility to figure out how they're going to support it. And what's actually interesting is you're going to find some really interesting bedfellows. Just this past weekend, for example, we worked with Onondaga County. That's a great example. Onondaga County. Nobody's idea of a groundbreaking place where you're seeing these all sorts of new innovative traditions and social justice. But Onondaga County is a really interesting place because it illustrates how... The census means that everybody's got to vote together. Onondaga County is governed by a Republican county executive, Joni Mahoney. She's no friend to immigrants. But the census is actually one particular instance where she needs immigrants, where she needs communities of color. She needs to make sure that they are all counted, because that means federal dollars coming to her district. That means that her district is going to be politically represented. So she has an incentive, the county has an incentive to figure out how to work with immigrant communities. So actually, we just did a training. Jeff Weiss, who's a a senior fellow working with us, um, did a training for Onondaga County volunteers working with the Workers' Center of Central New York, a very progressive immigrant worker center. You would never see that kind of pairing happen normally. So that is actually what I think the real opportunity of the census is. When everybody in New York State, whether we're Republican or Democrat, whether we're real estate developers or tenant groups, business and labor, we're all actually trying to row in the same direction. And I think if we can do that, we've tried to do that with our coalition, New York Counts 2020, but that I think is actually the civic engagement opportunity that if we seize it right, Right. we can actually make a huge difference and, and really sort of inculcate this broader culture of civic engagement.
4: Great, thank you so much, Steve. Um, I'd like to thank all of our panelists. At some point, uh, Congressman Espayat might have to duck out, but I'd like to open it up for a very brief uh, Q&A if anyone has any questions for our particular panelists or anything that's been said. And just as a nice reminder, there are many questions, so please keep your question to a question.
5: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Derek. I'm with the Black Institute. I've been going to a few Census 2020 events and meetings, forums, workshops. Um, I brought this up to Stephen before, and we have to check. We're still trying to check. The question is, we were told that if we do not answer that immigration question, the question on the census form, that the paperwork will still be counted. Do you have any more information to say
1: if that's valid or not valid?
6: I, I think it will be counted, even if you don't fill out that, that item. But I've been told by the attorneys that I'm working with on the amicus brief that there is a fine of $100 and for not filling out all the questions. Yeah, to the individual. So that's the way it stands. By the way, I, I do want to note that the mayor is going to put money into the census so that we get more enumerators that, uh, and fill in the gaps where the federal government may not. Uh, because this is critical. It's representation. And uh, golly, 55% didn't count in your neighborhood. You're going to be busy. So that's a really good, good indication that he's going to put money in. And knowing our borough president, she's going to be on top of it too. So we'll all be working overtime to make it happen. Congresswoman, can you flesh out that
4: statement really quickly? You said that there will be a five hundred dollar fine for any hundred dollar fine hundred
6: dollar fine for any incomplete census. Right, you have to fill out every question, or there's a hundred dollar fine.
9: Okay. So I, I would just note that this question, right? Should we actually fill out the citizenship question? And a lot of people, you know, on the internet are saying stuff like, "Well, we should boycott it. Um, we should encourage people not to fill it out, or we should put out wrong answers." you know kareen from the leadership conference on civil rights they're actually putting together a you know like a, a toolkit about this about how to answer it my understanding is that that's a bad idea that's a bad idea for the individuals because my understanding is that that questionnaire will not count and people will actually lose out if those questionnaires are actually taken out of the count in addition if folks are actually encouraging people to not fill it out, that in essence is an act of civil disobedience. And in fact, it's written in that there's criminal penalties for organizations that encourage people essentially not to fill out the census. Now, has anyone ever been prosecuted for that? No. But I actually think this is a thicket of a lot of really tricky questions that we, that we have not specifically come out publicly yet because we want to make sure we have all of our ducks in our own. Screen's gonna handle that, make sure we're good, well, right? Well, we intend <laughs> to
6: get the citizenship question off of the census. Right. That's what we intend. That's what the whole purpose of the lawsuit is about, that's right. and that's uh, the whole purpose of my amicus brief, and I have over 100 uh, members of Congress have signed on, and they're still signing. We're still trying to get a Republican, but first and foremost, we wanna get that question off before we get into the fallback uh, strategy.
10: Good morning, and uh, my name is Bob Kaplan from the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, and I wanna thank you all for being dedicated to this, and I wanna echo what Steve said about organizing works. Well, I'm I'm a realist, so I know that while the mayor will come up with some more money, and God willing, Congress comes up with some more money, and the borough president comes up with some more money, there's not gonna be enough funding for mainstream organizations to shift their priorities So what we're gonna need from you, and maybe you can give us a couple of one-liners right now, is a cogent, powerful argument from mainstream organizations doing all the stuff that they do to make this a priority. We've we've gotta become, and this is from a rabbi, we have gotta become evangelicals for the census.
6: Very good idea.
4: Steve or Leah, do you have any, or uh, Deputy Bar-President Bonilla, sort of to to go with that comment? uh, essentially the elevator pitch that we should be giving people, that, that 5, 10, 15-second pitch um, as to why they must or need to fill out the census in very specific cases?
8: You know, so again, from our perspective, we would we understand and empathize with the history of the three-fifths clause. So for us, you know, we are, you know, full citizens of this country or we're on— People are on the the path to citizenship, and so they, regardless of whether or not they can vote, they are full citizens or not, everyone deserves representation. This is something that, um, you know, came before the Supreme Court in 2015, in an Evenwell case where, um, out of Texas, the State attempted to use voters as the means to apportion people amongst districts, and we wrote a brief and talked about the history, again, of not having full representation as black Americans, and we cannot go back to that time, regardless of whether or not you're a child, whether you can vote, whether or not... Um, you want to vote, whether or not you do vote, you deserve representation, and the policy implications of that. If you want someone to make better decisions about immigration reform, you need to have better representation, and so that all is related to citizenship. If you want to have universal health care, single-payer system, you need representatives who are gonna fight for that, and that's all tied to the citizenship. If you want um, to have redistricting that reflects the diversity of your community, if you want to ensure that. You have you know people who are inter- interested in integrated schools, high quality schools, regardless of how much money you have. That's related to a fair and accurate census, the data that's collected, the redistricting that's done as a result of it. So I encourage—I can't remember who mentioned it—but we really have to connect um, the, this data collection, which seems impersonal. It seems um, not. Um, I don't, it just, it's not a sexy topic, you really have to connect it to the policy implications that we're seeing day in and day out um, when we read the newspaper and that's related to representation. So it's both a moral um, obligation and it also has policy ramifications on the day to day.
4: Okay, so I'm gonna have brief, uh, can you answer that question? And then we're gonna have some brief closing remarks by Congressman Espayat and Congresswoman Maloney before they have to leave. So, Deputy yeah. Bar President.
7: Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I think uh, we really have to appeal to our Hamiltonian uh, 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 spirit. And by that is to play Hamilton, not necessarily <laughs> in that uh, 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 we can't throw away our shot, right? In the sense that, as I say this sentence, uh, one American has died. As I say this sentence, one American has been born, right? That leaves us a net zero. Only through migration and immigration, net migration, really, are we growing, right? Every eight seconds, someone's dying. Every 13 seconds, someone's being Every eight seconds, someone's dying. Every 18 seconds, someone's being born. If that's just the state of America, we're stale and we're dead, right? Not through the vibrancy of net migration, of immigration, of the dynamism that's happening in this country with millennials and others, can we really uh, 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 bring about the America that's been the promise, right? There's a fear among millennials, there's a fear of people of color, there's a fear of immigrants that kind of the wheels are falling off and right at the precipice where we can start gaining the complexion and the traction and the substantive uh, spirit of the different cities, are, are we now being, the rug is being pulled from underneath us, the defunding, the, the lack of public uh, interest and public investment, the lack of a uh, 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 spirit of American exceptionalism, all this rhetoric now that comes out of you know the administration is something that many communities need to understand it's really uh, 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 signaling kind of like what kind of America they see in our hands right and I think the long game in this uh, it, what would we have to get at with mainstream organizations is that really this is about uh, uh, November 2020, uh, November 2020, as much as it is about April 1st, 2020, the census date. and it's really also about uh, 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 when they tell you who they are, believe them. If, they, if much of the talk is about fake news, trust me, there's talk now about fake census, right? The 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 the, the, the notion that science is dead, because census is very much a demographic, statistical, science-based, you know, endeavor as well. And, and be prepared, and it's already brewing that you know, this notion of statistical sampling to correct during uh, you know, the decennial head count and the, the ability to use that for reapportionment and be ready for the pushback on that. And and, and the the people to say, well, you know, science is dead. This is statistical hoaxery. This is something coming from China to just make black people, Latino people, look more numerous than they are. You know, just be prepared for that because it's an easy message. And it has been a winning message. And the census is just coincidentally timed with our national uh, contest of ideas.
4: Right, thank you so much. Um, I want to thank all of our panelists for this, and we'll have a brief break in between this panel and our second panel, but I'd like to ask Congressman Espayad and Congresswoman Maloney if you'd like to say any very brief remarks before you you leave us, and thanks again for joining us.
5: Sure. I want to thank uh, all of you for being here today. Uh, This is uh, obviously an important issue, uh, one that has a 10-year impact and beyond, and so we have several challenges, and I'm, I'm always the eternal optimist, and I think that we will take that question off the form. But irregardless, I think that, irregardless of whether the question is on the form or not, we should be mobilizing at different levels to ensure that we get the best and most accurate count. And for us to do that, we have to get the faith-based leadership on board. Because uh, nowhere is there a greater degree of trust than when the priest or the rabbi or the pri- from their pulpit tell the congregation, This is what you have to do. Uh, second of all, I think that the non for profit activist community also needs to simultaneously begin to build a strong network of work that will uh, also assist us in this endeavor. And finally, we in government at the federal, state, and local level, we gotta come up with funding because not only are enumerators gonna be cut, uh, but also the field offices will be cut in half. And so there's going to be a dramatic reduction as we shift, as the Census Bureau attempts to shift more online in this very ever-present era of a Russian and Big Brother presence, uh, we need to ensure that also we address that fear that my own personal data may be hacked into and used for whatever purposes, right? right. And so uh, there, this is a, a, we gotta, I, I, I agree with Aldrich. we gotta head, uh, uh, get ahead of the curve, we have to go ahead of the curve and begin to uh, plan with faith-based, community, not-for-profits, activists, local government to prepare to get the best count ever now. We were so, so, so successful in, in Upper Manhattan, uh, and I've been through three census actively. Uh, the first one, we had to deal with, with an INS agent that was raiding the bodegas. Right before the census kind of set out uh, a rash of, uh, of questions and fear. The guy was finally uh, convicted and, and he was uh, pardoned by uh, President Bush Sr., along with the Iran contract folks on New Year's Eve. On New year's Eve. But um, every 10 years, there's a different set of challenges, right? And so this one is very practical. And o- although we had those challenges in, t- in 2010, we were able to get the best count in the city. And that was because somebody knocked on my mother's door that she could identify with, and she opened that door. Once you open the door, you're halfway there. For some reason, there was a hiccup on, on, on my form. I had sent it in, and, and for some reason, they thought you know there was no record, or there was a problem with it. And I literally got like seven knocks on my door again of of the enumerators trying to get in touch with me. Now I leave early and come back late. Finally they got me. But they knocked on my door seven times they left notices that they were there just to find out what was going on with my form until we found out and you know everything was cool. But so this is the kind of effort that we got we gotta put out across the city of New York. And so we can get a, a an accurate count on our our city and state could really benefit from the number of people that we have. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Congresswoman? Thank, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you to NYU for hosting this in the McSilver Institute and our borough president. And I was delighted to join Ms. Adden, Mr. Choi, Dr. Greer, Deputy Borough President Bonilla, and my friend in Congress, uh, Congressman Espiat. V- very simply, the single most important element of a representative democracy is fair representation. So let's fight back. Uh, It's our job to get the funding in Washington. We'll keep fighting for that. We've actually doubled what it was before they started, believe it or not. Uh, But we need to fight back. Uh, We need to fight back in these midterm elections. We have to elect a Democratic Congress so we have a check on Mr. Trump and the Republicans, a check on how they run the census and everything else. And and we have to fight back on whatever obstacles they throw in our face on this census. Uh, so we can we have a democracy. We can use our our spare time to go out and work for an accurate uh, census. That with the faith community and organizations, we're going to have to organize here and and make it happen. Uh, but it seems that in all of the hostility coming from the administration. Most of it seems to be directed towards immigrant populations. As the mother of two children, I cannot imagine what it's like to have your children torn from your arms, and they don't even know where they are. This is outrageous behavior. We are fighting on so many fronts. A lot of the fronts, we can't do anything about it because we're outvoted. But we can do something on this front. We really can. If we organize and uh, really work with our community representatives that are represented here on the panel and in the audience, uh, we can make sure we get an accurate count, accurate representation, accurate funding for the needs of our great city. And again, thank you for allowing me to participate.
4: Thank you so much to all of our panelists. Can we please give our panelists a round of applause? so we're just going to take a brief break as we transition from panel one to panel two so please stay with us and we'll reconvene in about four minutes
0: you'll now hear highlights from the second panel of this event which features afua bruce joe salvo Corinne yu and dr christina greer
4: so afia i'll I'll start with you because you came out of the federal government and you know what can go wrong with these processes Uh, we think of healthcare.gov or the opm breach but you also work with some excellent technologists who came into the federal government during the Obama administration and worked to fix these very issues. So what do we need to know about tech preparedness and when must these efforts happen to be effective? And can you help us think about this both on a national and also a local level?
11: Sure. So as you mentioned, I came out of the federal government before joining new America and several of the technology fellows that we have, working at new america as part of the public interest technology initiative also came out of the federal government i don't think there's any shortage of examples or lack of information on some of the technology rollouts and technology developments done by the federal government that have not gone as intended you may remember healthcare.gov for example and how that went as far as what can be done Involvement earlier is always better, as with any technology development program. With the Census, the Government Accountability Organization, the GAO, recently announced that there are 44 systems that need to be completed by the Census Bureau. As of the end of April, six of them are not functional. Several of them still will need to go um, authorization to be used, even after they all become functional. So I think it is certainly time for the census to continue development, but also look to um, external tech companies to help in some of the testing and some of the development that
4: needs to be done. Joe, you've seen many a census. Can you set the stage for us? So. You know, our previous panel talked about some of the, the problems that we've seen. What are some of the usual and unusual problems that you're seeing? What do you fear most about 2020? And what are you doing about it? We'll get to what we need to do in a moment, but what are you doing about some of the problems that you see?
10: You heard earlier about address lists, about the issues involved, in making sure that all those housing units that you may not see from the curbside get included in the census. and A good news story I can report is that we're on it. The Department of City Planning is the lead agency in making sure that all the housing units in New York City make it to the Census Bureau's address list. We have a submission that is due August 6th. In that submission will likely be the addition of upwards of 100,000 housing units that are not currently on the Census Bureau's address list. Um, That's preliminary. We are continuing to work as we speak. We have people in the field. That is the culmination of over two years of field work where we went out to verify addresses on blocks in the city where we think uh, there's going to be an issue with the Census Bureau actually having the units. Something that people forget is that the census is a count of people, but it's a count of people in specific locations, okay? You need to have a place on a map in order to be counted. If you do not have a recognized address, okay, the Census Bureau's list, you you won't be counted. Why? Because you have to be in a district. You have to be, in order to participate from the political standpoint, you need to have a residence. And it's important to realize that. So the address list is the foundation of the census.
4: Kareen, I have a question. You're at the National Epicenter of Efforts to Address Potential Census Problems how do you see the various tools, that's legal, technological, political, and outreach, converging to support a fair count? This is what Congresswoman Maloney talked about. You know, we need fair representation and a fair count. So what do we need to do at the local level, and are there some best practices?
12: So at the Leadership Conference, which is a coalition of 200 national civil rights organizations working to make an America as good as its ideals, this census, ensuring a fair and accurate census is a top civil rights Priority. We've been around for decades, we've worked on uh, censuses for decades, and counting every person in the United States, as you've heard, is not an easy endeavor in normal times. These are not normal times, and as Joe noted, our friend Terri Ann Lowenthal has been calling what we're seeing now a perfect storm of challenges. And so, um, you know, we talked about the elevator speech in the earlier panel, the elevator speech that that we have for the perfect storm of challenges is insufficient funding, the first high-tech census, the absence of permanent leadership, the political climate of fear, and now the untested, untimely, unnecessary citizenship question that's been added. But there is a perfect storm of efforts that advocates, members of Congress, state and local officials, the faith community, the business community, um, et cetera, et cetera, have undertaken to save the census, and so that includes the litigation that you've heard about. Six lawsuits have been filed to oppose the addition of a citizenship question on the 2020 census, including by your own state AG in New York, as uh, Mrs. Maloney mentioned, but there's also a lawsuit that's been filed by the California AG. There are lawsuits that have been filed by civil rights groups, and so those are moving through the system, and there will be a robust AMECA strategy that the Leadership Conference in the Brennan Center, New York's Brennan Center, NYU's Brennan Center, will be coordinating so that different sectors can have their voices heard. Thank you for listening to this New America
8: NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.